are starting a new sermon series this morning. Uh, It's appropriate being the first Sunday of 2020. We're starting a new series with the goal of helping us understand both who God is and who he has made us to be. He tells us in the Bible that he made each one of us, every human, in his own image. Uh, He's given us some of his own attributes, right? The fingerprints of our creator are all over who we are. Some of these attributes we talk about a lot, but others kind of go unmentioned. We don't talk about them often. We'll call them the B-sides. All right, record sales outsold CDs this past year, so you guys should know what a B-side is, right? B-side is the opposite side of the record that people don't often listen to. The songs don't get put out a lot. We're looking at the B-side attributes of God that he has given to us. And I wanted to start this morning with one that God comes right out and says is true of who he is fundamentally, but we don't talk about it often. As we hear these passages read, I want to ask you to consider the fact that we are five days into January, and how many times have you gotten angry in those five days? Let's give ear to the reading of God's word. A reading from Exodus chapters 33 and 34. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. And proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. Pray with me. God, this morning as we come to you to hear from you in your word, we ask that you would send your spirit to us to help us not only hear what you are saying to us, but also to believe it, to be changed by it. We ask that you would give us fresh eyes that we might be able to accurately see our own hearts, to see the sin within And help us to trust that when you promise to receive us and forgive us, that you really do. Help us to be changed by this gospel you proclaim to us this morning. Pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. And I pray this in Jesus' mighty and powerful name. Amen. The first Jason Bourne movie starts with him being found floating in the ocean. Two bullets in his back, a digital bank account number in his hip, and no memory. In the first part of that movie, he's trying to figure out who he is and why these people are trying to kill him. 
And at one point, he's sitting in a diner in the Alps, talking with the girl he's paid to drive him to Paris. And she says, has anything come back to you? Any memory? And he says, no. But I do know all these crazy things about our situation. I can tell you the the six license plates on the cars outside. The guy at the bar is 215 pounds and he knows how to fight. If I need a gun, the truck with the red cab is the place to go. And the last one is interesting to me. At this altitude, I can run flat out for half a mile before my hands start shaking. But I don't know who I am. It's kind of useless information if you think about it, except for the fact we find out that he is a CIA-trained assassin. So all that information is incredibly pertinent. He knows his limits. He knows what he can endure before it begins to affect his performance. And that got me thinking. Knowing your limits is important, right? I know for a fact that at any altitude, I can run for a quarter mile flat out before I need a shower and a nap. (laughs) I know that in a packed car, I can drive for four hours with whiny kids before I need a Chick-fil-A stop. I know that I can listen to 2.5 minutes of pop country before I have to change the station on the radio. And I know that I can withstand 25 seconds of reality TV before my brain melts. (laughs) Knowing your limits is important. Understanding what you can endure is important. That's what God is communicating to Moses in this passage. God has been leading Moses and Israel throughout the wilderness to the promised land where he has said he will live with Israel, his people. But they've had a rough go of it. Things haven't been great, and they've been grumbling against God, complaining that he's not doing what he should. Time and time again, they turn their back on him. They've even asked Moses to take them back to Egypt, where they were slaves, in order to have a better life. And right before this passage, Moses goes up on the mountain where God is living in order to meet with God and to receive the Ten Commandments. And Israel's had enough. They say, we don't, we don't even know if God's real. Is Moses alive? Is he dead up there? We don't know. So they take all their gold jewelry, all their precious things, melt them down, and form them into a golden calf. And they say, we're going to worship that because we can see that. We know that that's there. What ensues is this conversation, this negotiation between God and Moses over how God should react to their disobedience and their rebellion. And it ends with Moses saying, asking God to see his glory. He says, show me your glory. But notice how God responds in verse 19. I will make my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name. Effectively, God is saying, Moses, you just want to be impressed by what I can do. You just want to be wowed by my power. But that's not who I am. I'm going to make my goodness pass before you, and I'm going to tell you who I really am. I'm going to let you know me. I'm going to tell you what makes me, me. And when he does this, he paints for Moses this beautiful picture of his character, so beautiful, so captivating, that the words God says are recited over and over again throughout the Old Testament to talk about God. In fact, they've come to be known in Judaism as the 13 attributes of God. It starts, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and continues, merciful and gracious, 
If you've been at Grace before, you know we talk about that a lot. Abounding in steadfast love. That gets a lot of play in most churches. But what about that one in the middle? Slow to anger. Can also be translated long-suffering. We don't talk about that a lot. In fact, it was kind of hard for me to find a lot of information to read about those words. We don't talk about it maybe because it seems self-explanatory. Slow to anger, long-suffering. We get it, right? It doesn't seem as complex or as powerful as the other attributes that God gives us. But in fact, in calling himself long-suffering, God is saying a lot. He's saying a lot about his approachability, about who he is. He's talking about the expectations that he has for us, and he's painting for us a picture of who he is turning us into. Right? Another way to say those things is that calling himself long-suffering tells us how we should view him, how he, should view, how he does view us, and how we should view other people. Those are the three things we're going to look at this morning, how to view God, how God views us, and how to view other people, starting with this idea of how to view God. The language God uses here, the, the phrase, the Hebrew phrase, is two words, um, and it's Eric af. The first word, Eric, is the Hebrew word for long, extended, nothing special there. The second word, af, has two meanings. It could mean anger, or it could mean nose or face. Kind of silly, but think about it. Uh, anger is an emotion that you wear on your face. You can't really hide true anger, can you? That makes a ton of sense. So essentially, Moses says, I am Yahweh. That's my name. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God that is uh, merciful and gracious and long-nosed. Okay, that might seem like just a random throwaway fact for Hebrew trivia night. But if we think about this visually, it makes a little bit more sense. You know someone's angry face, don't you? If you have some information that you need to tell someone that's going to make them angry, you probably know the look that's going to be on their face when you tell them that. And it's probably giving you a little bit of hesitation to tell them this information, right? Knowing they're going to be angry prevents you from being comfortable talking to them about it. I can remember being somewhere between 10 and 12 years old, and my mom was out running errands. She had left my older brother in charge of my sister and I. And she told us, you're not allowed to play outside, video games, none of that, until you unload the dishwasher. Well, as we were unloading the dishwasher, my brother and I, I dropped a plate, and it shattered. And in my 10 to 12-year-old mind, I thought for sure, this is one of my mom's prized china pieces, and she is going to be so angry. My brother got the broom and the vacuum, we cleaned it up. There's no way she would have ever known, but I knew at some point, she'd figure out she has 11 pieces of china instead of 12 pieces of china. Now, in reality, looking back, this was just a regular old plate that we used every day. It had no special meaning to my mom at all. But I was terrified of how angry she would be. And so for the rest of the time that she was out running errands, that fear built up in me. And I was so afraid that she would be so angry when she walked in the door and with tears pouring down my face, I blurted out, I broke a plate, I'm so sorry. I was just hoping she wouldn't kill me on the spot. Now she didn't, because she didn't really care. But the fear of her anger changed the way I thought about talking to her about what I had done, right? In telling us that he is long-suffering, 
God is saying, I'm not volatile. You don't have to wonder if I'm going to blow up at you when you come to me. I'm not. That's not who I am. I am slow to anger. I am long-suffering. And using this language about himself, God is throwing his arms open wide to anyone and everyone, no matter where you come from, no matter what you've been through or what you've done, God welcomes you. He's slow to anger. Maybe you've never talked to God in your entire life. Maybe you've just assumed that he was a a nice story for people to get through hard times. Then maybe not even real. God's not mad at you. God's not angry with you over that. He wants you to come to him. Maybe you've really screwed up in your life. You've uh, made some bad decisions. You've hurt some people big time and you can't fix anything. God's not sitting there waiting to tell you, if you had just listened to me, your life would be okay. If you had just done as I said, everything would be okay. God's not waiting to blow up at you. He wants you to come to him. Maybe you're mad or disappointed that God hasn't given you what you wanted or what you think you deserve. God's not waiting to spring at you and point out the places you've messed up and why you don't deserve that stuff. God says, come, tell me that. Tell me why you're angry, why you're disappointed. I'm not going to blow up at you. God wants you, the you that you are right now, to come to him. And telling us that he is long-suffering hopefully puts you at ease, that you know you're not walking into an ambush. You're not walking up to a God that's volatile, that could blow up at any minute, but a God that is slow to anger, that is long-suffering, that welcomes you where you're at right now with open arms to pray to God, to talk to him. This helps us know how we should view God. And it helps us know how God views us. It's the second point, how God views us. Long-suffering means that God expects this to happen again. God doesn't say to Moses, I am gracious, I am merciful, uh, and that whole golden calf thing, I can take that one for the team. This will be my good deed uh, for 2020. I, I got this one. God says, I am slow to anger, I am long-suffering. Moses, all that stuff that Israel has done in the past, I can respond graciously and mercifully towards that. And when my people continue to do that in the future, continue to fail, continue to grumble, to rebel, to ask to go back into slavery, I can respond with mercy and grace for that too in the future. That's who I am. God says, I can absorb that. I can take that. God knows that his people are going to make him suffer. He knows that you and I will abandon him. We'll turn our back on him. We'll worship other gods and get ourselves into all kinds of trouble. God knows that you are going to sin. That should change the way that we view our own sin, right? When we know something bad is going to happen, it mitigates the way that we respond to it. I absolutely hate driving to the North Bay. Whether it's the North Bay Marin, the North Bay Oakland, I can't stand it because it takes forever. But if I start out a trip by telling myself, this is going to be two and a half hours up, 
two and a half hours back. It helps a little bit. Every now and then, Bob and I have a meeting in Marin. We go to with other pastors in the Bay Area. And it starts at nine o'clock. And I just decided one time, we're going to leave my house at 6.30. End of story. Yes, we're going to get there early. We're going to miss all the traffic and we're going to have to tool around in Marin for an hour before the meeting starts. But you know what? It prevents me from being a crab for the first two hours of the meeting. Does it make the drive any better? No, it's still a long drive. Does it make me any less tired on the way home? No, I'm still exhausted. But knowing and expecting something to be difficult and challenging helps mitigate our response to it. Which means this. If you are sitting in this room, standing in the back or standing on this stage, you are a sinner and you should expect yourself to sin. You should expect yourself to fail pretty soon. Maybe today when you're out having bagels and coffee, something's going to happen. Maybe later today when you get home, whatever it is, you should expect yourself to fail God knows that you are going to sin. He's not surprised by it. Why are you? If we have a realistic view of our own sin, that enables us to respond not out of surprise, not out of shame trying to hide it or cover it up so no one can see it, but to honestly address who we are and how we behave. Why did I just blow up at my kids? Why did I say that thing behind that person's back? Why do I keep scrolling Instagram, hate-liking everybody's vacation videos, wishing that I could have something nice too just for once? Oh, right, because I am a sinner, because I fail. God knew I would fail. God knew I would sin, and he welcomes me with open arms to come to him. Why? Because he is long-suffering, He welcomes us to repent, to come to him and say, I've done it again. I've messed up again. And if you can have that kind of honesty and openness with the God of the universe that created you and sustains all things, then admitting to someone else that you actually messed up again, hopefully is a little less scary. You can say, you know what, you're right. I did that thing I shouldn't have done. I didn't do that thing that I should have done. And I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? If you know that God welcomes you as a sinner, as someone who has failed, then you know that apologizing to someone else means God still welcomes you as a sinner. You have the opportunity not to defend your behavior, not to shift blame, You don't have to compare your sin to someone else's to make yourself feel better. You can just own it. I am a sinner. I did this thing wrong. Will you forgive me? God welcomes us with open arms because he is an approachable God who can suffer all things. He's not surprised by our sin. We shouldn't be either. And recognizing that when we come to him, and ask for repentance, and he forgives us, begins to change the way that we view others, right? God being long-suffering tells us how we should view him, how he views us, and finally, how to view others. The New Testament builds this case for how God's long-suffering nature affects us and changes us. 
In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter writes this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, is long-suffering towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why is God long-suffering? What is the point? So that we would come and repent. He allows us to stumble and fail to sin, to break down and try and fix it, solve our problems, clean ourselves up, so often that we come to the place where we realize, I just can't do anything about it. I can't fix myself. I can't solve this problem. The only hope I have is if God does something about it, if God will forgive me, if God will change me. What Peter is saying is God is willing to take whatever he has to in order for you to repent. He is willing to suffer anything, including living a perfectly sinless life, being falsely accused, wrongly convicted, and unjustly murdered. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are the ultimate picture of God's long-suffering nature. He put up with the ultimate suffering for you. And Jesus is the person that God's long-suffering nature drives us to because he's the only place that we can find forgiveness and we can find change. That's what Jesus is talking about, this change that his forgiveness builds in us in his story that he tells in Matthew chapter 18. It's a parable. And he says, there was a king and the king had a servant. The servant owed the king 10,000 talents, basically an incalculable sum. It's like he had med school debt, law school debt, and business school debt all wrapped up into one. There was no way that this servant could ever pay the king back. The king calls the servant in and says, guess what? You either pay or I'm going to sell you, I'm going to sell your wife, I'm going to sell your kids and all your possessions just to recoup some money. This is how the servant responds in Matthew 18. Have patience with me. Bear with my sin, my debt. Be slow to anger with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity, the king doesn't just give the man time to pay back, but he pardons the man's debt, cancels it completely, right? Jesus paints for us this picture of the long-suffering nature of the king leading to repentance, which leads to forgiveness. But the story continues. That servant goes out and he runs into a buddy. The buddy owes him a couple of bucks, but can't pay the servant back right now. And the servant says, fine, I'm going to throw you into prison until you can pay. His buddy says the exact same thing to him that he did to the king. Have patience with me. Be long-suffering towards me, and I will pay you back. But the servant said no, and he puts the man into prison. When the king hears of it, he calls the servant to himself, and he rebukes him, saying this, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt that you owed because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had had mercy on you? What Jesus is getting his disciples, the people listening, getting us to see is that the process of leaning on God's long-suffering nature, leading to repentance, leading to forgiveness, should begin to change the way that we deal with someone else's sin. Right? What we see here is that when we come to God and ask for forgiveness, if we really understand 
the depth of our sin, if we feel the weight of our failure, God's forgiveness builds up more and more. If you think your sin is only an inch deep, God only has to cover one inch. But if you realize the depth of your sin, you realize how much more the cross of Christ had to cover for you. And what Jesus is telling us, what the whole of Scripture is telling us is that God is so long-suffering. He has been hurt by us and failed by us so much that if we come to understand that depth, it will change the way we deal with other people's sin. It will make us more gentle, more long-suffering, more slow to anger. When I was in seminary, I was an intern at a church in Charlotte, and the pastors asked me to start a new ministry, part of my uh, internship uh, requirements. And so I gathered a couple people together. We dreamed a little bit. We planned a little bit. Uh, We set a date to launch this ministry. We began to advertise, to drum up some interest. I invited some people that weren't part of the church to come and be part of the ministry. But I struggled to trust that the other people on the team were going to work as hard as I thought we should work. That they were going to pursue the same vision that I was pursuing. And so I decided I would do all the work myself. So after months of advertising and trying to get people interested, one Sunday morning, Mark, the pastor of the church said, hey, we're just going to have to cancel this. It's not going to happen. So he got up and in front of everyone said, I know we had some interest in this. People were excited about it, but we're going to have to cancel the launch of this ministry. And I was embarrassed, disappointed, frustrated. And when Mark and I met the next day after staff meeting, I told him that. I'm frustrated. I'm sorry that I let you down. My feeling was this meant I shouldn't be a pastor. I can't even start a ministry. Like, why would I continue doing this? You must assume that I'm the worst intern that you've ever had. And he was so gentle with me and said, no, that's not true at all. This does help us see where you need to grow. It helps us know where you need some more experience and how you need to put to death the perfectionism that drives you to hold on to everything and not trust other people. And I was shocked at how gentle he was. And I asked, aren't you angry? Doesn't this upset you that that we had built this new ministry up to be something great, that people were interested, that possibly some people are going to leave and go to another church because they have a ministry like that that they can go find? And he was like, yeah, I mean, I wish it had turned out differently. But the reality is I could have failed at starting this ministry just like you did. And then he told me the story about when he was an intern. And his church asked him to lead a men's retreat. They were expecting about 100 men to show up. And he had reserved a location, a retreat place in the mountains. He had booked a speaker and paid him already. And because of some of the same reasons, a little bit different reasons, the the retreat fell through. And he had to cancel the retreat. And the church was out $10,000. He thought for sure, they're going to ask me not come back as an intern. They're going to ask me to find another church. He thought maybe he would have to pay some of that money back. But his boss, the pastor he was working for, had been gentle with him, slow to anger towards his failure. He had been long-suffering with him. And when he saw me fail at trying to start this ministry, he recognized the similarities to his own failure. And he knew because he had been treated in a long-suffering way, he could treat me in a long-suffering way. It's similar to the cycle that we see presented in Scripture. When we come to God and repent, He is slow to anger with us. 
He forgives us. And that in turn enables us to be forgiving and gentle and slow to anger with others. Which leads me to end with these questions. Would your family say that you are gentle in the face of their failure? Would your coworkers or employees say that you are slow to anger? Would your relatives, your friends, your neighbors agree that you are long-suffering? We're all in the same boat here. If the answer is no to any of those things, what we see in Scripture is that the only way that we can grow in this attribute of God is by experiencing Him treating us this way, which means we need to see that His arms are wide open. We need to come to Him in repentance, receive forgiveness, continually do that and be changed into long-suffering, gentle people who are slow to anger in the face of this other sin towards us. Let's pray. God, we can't thank you enough for the way that you have treated us, for how you have been gentle and long-suffering towards us. And we admit that we will never know the depth of our own sin, but we believe you when you say, you know our hearts, you know our failings, and you welcome us anyway. We thank you for Jesus, for his life, his death, and resurrection. The only way that we could even begin to approach you is because he died and rose again for us. We ask that you would turn us into a people that are long-suffering, that are slow to anger, that are not easily offended, but are willing to bear with one another, to love one another, and to accept the reality that we are sinners who are loved more than we could ever imagine. We thank you and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.